Karachaus. Today I'm going to be reading a chapter from the book Better Than Before by Gretchen Rubin. Um, the book is called Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits to Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and Generally Build a Happier Life. Now these aren't books I generally like, these kinds of self-help books, um, because to me they seem to make things seem simple and then I feel defeated if I can't um, if I can't achieve what I want to achieve but this book was a gift to me from my sister-in-law um, back in December for my birthday and um, and it, she said it's really really good and so I haven't read it yet but I've been flipping through and I found a chapter that um, I think can apply to all of us um, when we want to make changes um, and sort of hopefully something that we can all take a little bit from um, and use in a useful way. I don't know, even if it's just entertaining to listen to. Um, so this chapter is called Free from French Fries. Often we know we'd be better off if we refused a temptation, but it's hard to resist that extra glass of wine, that impulse purchase, that last hour of TV. When I was in high school, the seniors sold donuts every Friday morning to raise money for the prom, and my friends and I took turns making the early morning pickup. Lamar's Donuts was a modest place, housed in an old gas station, but the donuts were legendary throughout Kansas City. Whenever I was on pickup duty, these donuts bedeviled me. I'd be sitting with several heavy boxes in my lap as we drove back to school, and first I'd take a bite of one donut, then I'd eat a quarter, then half, then, why not just finish it? and then another. I ate the donuts in pieces, so I never knew how many I'd eaten, the phenomenon of avoiding monitoring. It was always the same, the temptation, the giving in, the promise of moderation, and then the slide into overindulgence. For dealing with this kind of temptation, we're often told, be moderate, don't indulge every day, but don't deny yourself altogether, because if you do, you'll fall even further off the wagon. For a long time, I kept this strategy of moderation and failing with Lamar's donuts and so many other things. Eventually, I learned to reject this advice. Somehow, I figured out that it was easier for me to resist certain temptations by never giving in to them. I kept hearing advice from experts that this strategy was bound to backfire, however. So why did it work? I came across the answer in a casual remark made by one of my favorite writers, the 18th century essayist Samuel Johnson. When a friend urged him to take a little wine, Dr. Johnson explained, I can't drink a little, child, therefore I never touch it. Abstinence is as easy to me as temperance would be difficult. That's me, I realized, with a sudden thrill of identification. That's exactly how I am. Like Dr. Johnson, I'm an abstainer. I find it far easier to give up something altogether than to indulge moderately. And this distinction has profound implications for habits. Within the study of habits, certain tensions reappear, whether to accept myself or expect more from myself, whether to embrace the present or consider the future, whether to think about myself or forget myself. Because habit formation often requires us to relinqu relinquish something we want, a constant challenge is, how can I deprive myself of something without feeling deprived? When it comes to habits, feeling deprived is a pernicious state. When we feel deprived, we feel entitled to compensate ourselves, often in ways that undermine our good habits. I realized that one way to deprive myself without creating a feeling of deprivation is to deprive myself totally. 
Weirdly, when I deprive myself altogether, I feel as though I haven't deprived myself at all. When we abstainers deprive ourselves totally, we conserve energy and willpower because there are no decisions to make and no self-control to muster. Abstainers do better when they follow all-or-nothing habits. Moderators, by contrast, are people who do better when they indulge moderately. Abstaining is a counterintuitive and non-universal strategy. It absolutely doesn't work for everyone, but for people like me, it's enormously useful. As an abstainer, if I try to be moderate, I exhaust myself debating. How much can I have? Does this time count? If I had it yesterday, can I have it today? In Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, a character remarks, the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it, and it can be a relief to give in, to end the tiresome mental chatter about whether and why and when to indulge. But, I discovered, abstaining cures that noise just as effectively. I'm not tempted by things I've decided are off-limits. If I never do something, it requires no self-control to maintain that habit. If only I'd known to abstain from Lamar's Donuts. I tried to eat just a few bites, and that was my mistake. It's a secret of adulthood. By giving something up, I gain. I once talked to a guy who explained how he'd used abstaining to change his eating habits. He was young and lean, so I was surprised when he told me that until recently he'd been overweight. Oh yeah, fat camp as a kid, the whole thing, he explained. But by the time I met him, he had successfully kept his weight off for years. First, I gave up dairy, he explained. That didn't seem too hard. No milk on my coffee, no ice cream. Then I gave up rice, then bread. Each time I had to decide what I would give it, that I would give it up forever. But it never seemed very hard to stop eating a particular thing, and then I never thought about it again. A blog reader agreed. Much easier to say no to something once and be done with the whole issue than to go back and forth endlessly. Abstinence takes zero mental effort. That was my experience. For instance, in the past, I'd worked hard to keep sweets out of the apartment so I wouldn't have to resist eating them. Now that I abstain, the presence of sweets doesn't bother me, and my family is happier. Many people aren't abstainers, of course. Moderators, for their part, find that occasional indulgence both heightens their pleasure and strengthens their resolve. They get panicky or rebellious at the thought of never getting or doing something. They do better when they avoid strict rules. They may even find that keeping treats near at hand makes them less likely to indulge, because when they know they can have something, they don't crave it. One moderator posted, By allowing myself an occasional splurge, I don't feel like I'm missing out on something. Tell me no, and I just want it more. In fact, from what I've seen, moderators shouldn't try to abstain. If they try to deny themselves, they can become very preoccupied with indulging. A moderator friend told me, when I'm supposed to fast for Yom Kippur, I end up eating a huge amount of food by 9 a.m. on that first morning. Every other day, I can go for hours in the morning with no food without even noticing it. But when I'm supposed to fast, I have to eat. His wife added, he eats more on Yom Kippur than on any other day of the year. Abstainers and moderators can be surprisingly judgmental of each other. A moderator nutritionist once gave me the familiar mainstream advice. You're making a mistake by denying yourself all the time. Follow the 80-20 rule and be healthy 80% of the time and indulge within reason 20% of the time. When I tried to explain about being an abstainer, she wouldn't believe that a 100% rule might be easier for people like me. Side note, every nutritionist I've ever met is a moderator. Moderators often make disapproving comments to me like, it's not healthy to be so rigid, or it would be better to learn how to manage yourself. Ironically, I feel much less rigid and far more relaxed now that I use abstaining to maintain some habits. On the other hand, my impulse is to say to moderators, you can't keep cheating and expect to make progress, 
or why not just go cold turkey? But there's no universal answer. It's a matter of what's best for a particular person. Abstainers and moderators behave very differently. A moderator told me, every month or so, I buy some bars of really fine chocolate. Every afternoon, I eat one square of chocolate. You're never tempted to eat more? No, I just want the one square, he said. It would be impossible for me to eat one square of chocolate a day. For the rest of the day, I'd be thinking about that bar of chocolate. In fact, I discovered that the question, could you eat one square of chocolate every day, is a good way to distinguish abstainers from moderators. All moderators seem to keep a bar of chocolate stashed away to eat one square at a time. Maybe this explains the mystery of why chocolate bars are divided into squares. A conversation with a moderator friend revealed another telling distinction. I got a sundae from my favorite ice cream store, she told me, and it was delicious. But after a while, I could hardly taste it. I let a friend finish it. I've never left ice cream unfinished in my life, I said. For moderators, the first bite tastes the best, and then their pleasure gradually drops, and they might even stop eating before they're finished. For abstainers, however, the desire for each bite is just as strong as the first bite, or stronger, so they may want seconds, too. In other words, for abstainers, having something makes them want it more. For moderators, having something makes them want it less. As an abstainer, I've learned not to succumb to the one-bite argument. What difference does one bite make? I just want to taste, that's all. Ha! As La Rochefoucauld wrote, it is much easier to extinguish a first desire than to satisfy all of those that follow it. Abstaining can serve well outside the context of eating. It works whenever we feel that moderation is too difficult to manage. For instance, many people use the strategy of abstaining to control their use of technology. A friend loves the word game Ruzzle, and she had the habit of playing it on her phone every night before bed. I had to quit it, she told me. Between work and the kids, the only time I have to read it is before bed, and I was using that time to play Ruzzle. I was addicted. I adore reading, and I bought four books to read on vacation, and I thought, I'll never read these books unless I stop playing Ruzzle. Are you going to start playing again eventually? Nope, I deleted the app from all my devices. Couldn't you limit yourself to 20 minutes or just a few times a week? Absolutely not. A guy told me ruefully, I wish I'd given up video games in grad school. I'm 100% confident that my playing made me need an extra year to write my PhD thesis. I was always trying to play for just a little while. A blog reader posted, when my husband and I lived in Rome in student poverty, which is not real poverty, we literally were counting every lira. There's a high-end fashion street near the Spanish steps, and I never enjoyed window shopping so much. I knew I couldn't afford anything, so I just enjoyed strolling and admiring the beauty. No questions to ask, decisions to make, or even entertain. I was forced to be an abstainer. Some abstainers are like me and abstain very strictly from whatever we're trying to resist. Other abstainers aren't quite so punctilious. Hmm, don't know that word. Like my father, he mostly abstains. After he had been on a low-carb diet, mostly for some months, I asked him, you have dessert sometimes and you drink wine and scotch. Do you worry that you'll gradually lose your healthy eating habits? I knew I wouldn't be able to pull off this approach myself. No, really, I know I can eat this way forever, he said, as he'd told me many times before. I allow myself a few exceptions, and any time I eat something that isn't low-carb, I just go right back to my usual choices at the next meal. It's not hard. Self-knowledge will enable us to use the approach that works for us, which may also mean ignoring the advice of people who insist that their way is the right way. In fact, a person might be both an abstainer and a moderator, depending on the context. 
A friend confessed, mac and cheese is my kryptonite. If I have a single bite, I eat it all. But with something like potato chips, I don't have trouble stopping after a few handfuls. Another friend said, I can have no wine or three glasses of wine. I can't have one or two glasses of wine, but I eat half a slice of cake and my wife can never do that. Abstainers and moderators alike are sometimes able to invoke consumption snobbery to avoid feelings of deprivation. One friend buys only the most expensive wine he can afford. If it's cheap, I gulp it down. If it's expensive, I take my time. I enjoy every sip and I don't open bottle after bottle. Another friend said, I used to buy a crazy number of books and my apartment was getting too crowded, but I didn't want to buy I didn't want to give up book buying which I love. Now I only buy first editions, so I get the pleasure of buying them, but in much smaller quantities. Also, it's true that for abstainers and moderators alike, there can be a kind of Lent pleasure in abstinence, in relinquishment, for a limited time. As Muriel Spark observed, the, the sacrifice of pleasures is, of course, itself a pleasure. We sometimes enjoy choosing to give, up, think, to give things up temporarily for fasts, cleanses, technology breaks, retreats, or religious observances. But when abstaining is tied to a transcendent, transcendent value in actions such as observing the Sabbath, keeping kosher, or shopping locally to support independent businesses, it's far more meaningful and therefore sometimes more enjoyable or at least more sustainable. Lent pleasure is a gratifying exercise in self-control. We set an expectation for ourselves and we meet it. Also, giving up something for a short time reawakens our pleasure in it. A friend who works in fashion did a color, a color cleanse and wore only neutrals for a week. Temporarily to give up color or coffee or a credit card makes us appreciate it much more. Alternatively, temporarily giving it up may also help us see to see that we're happier when we permanently drop it from our stock of habits. After Elizabeth had been trying to follow the low-carb approach for a while, I had the chance to ask her about it in person when I stayed at her house during a work visit to L.A. The first morning, as we poured ourselves more coffee, I asked for the latest report on her eating habits. She sighed. It's not going great. You don't mind giving up those carb foods, but I like more variety. I like eating pizza or pasta now and then. Then, to my astonishment, she added, But you know what I figured out? I'm actually an abstainer. My weakness is french fries, and now I don't eat them, ever. You're an abstainer? I was amazed. When I was first identifying the concepts of abstainers and moderators, Elizabeth had been my model moderator. Yes, it turns out that it's easier to give something up altogether. With some things I can't be moderate, abstaining's easier. But how do you feel about saying no to yourself all the time? While I find it fairly easy to tell myself no, stop, or never, Elizabeth is a person who resents restrictions and does much better with positive resolutions. I can't give myself a negative, she told me. I have to make this a positive thing. So I tell myself, now I'm free from french fries. Free from french fries, exactly, I said. Free from decisions, free from guilt, free from the bread basket and the candy bowl. Since that conversation, I've concluded that many people are abstainers who don't realize it. Abstaining sounds demanding and inflexible, so people assume that they're moderators, even if they've never successfully followed that strategy. But counterintuitively, for many people, abstaining is easier. Research and my own experience suggest that the less we, in, less we indulge in something, the less we want it. When we believe that a craving will remain unsatisfied, it may diminish. Cravings are more often prov provoked by possibility than by denial. William James observed, it is surprising how soon a desire will die of inanition if it be never fed. 
One study of flight attendants who were smokers compared their nicotine cravings during short flights, three to five and a half hours, and long flights, eight to 13 hours. Attendants' cravings increased as the plane was about to land, regardless of whether the flight had been short or long. In other words, the duration of abstinence didn't predict a nicotine craving as well as the knowledge that the flight was ending and a cigarette was coming within reach. Certainly for me, the strategy of abstaining makes some challenging habits far easier to foster. Abstaining sounds so hard, but really it's easier. And while it isn't a universal tool, no habit formation strategy is universally useful. Different solutions for different people. Also, the more I worked on my habits, the more I became convinced that most successful habit changes require the coordination of multiple strategies, all aimed at a single behavior. In my case, the strategy of the lightning bolt had made me want to abstain from carbs in the first place. Abstaining had made it easier to eat low carb, and monitoring allowed me to track what I was eating. Changing a habit may be simple, but it's not easy, and the more tools used, the better. Phew. Okay, so that is um, Gretchen Rubin uh, writing in the book Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits. Um, and let's see what year that was published. Uh, hmm, it's a pretty new book. It was published in 2015. So I um, hope you guys enjoyed that and um, hope you have a great day and a great weekend.